So here's a puzzle. How did food in England go from this... Heinz 57. You have meals to plan each day. You and Heinz can make them gay. Get together right away with Heinz 57. Get together with delicious Heinz baked beans. To this... Hi, hi. Try it before you buy. Yeah. All right, then. Are they sunbrushed tomatoes? Yeah, they are. Mm. Can I have a little tub of those? Anything else? See what would be nice. One of those green olives. Little knob of parmesan, don't Oh, no. I got it in the helmet. I'll save it for later. You just heard an advert for Heinz Baked Beans from 1955 and an ad for Sainsbury's from the early noughties featuring Jamie Oliver. This is the story of the rise of Mediterranean food in England, from pesto to sun-dried tomatoes, rocket to feta cheese. Things that seem to be fairly normal food items today, but which were pretty rare in England 30-plus years ago. Take olive oil. Prior to the 1990s, one of the few ways you could get it in England was in small bottles sold at chemists. One reason that people enjoy life, whatever their age, is a Mediterranean diet of fresh fish, vegetables and olive oil. Enjoy life. Enjoy Bertoli. In this episode, we'll look at how a movement of cooks and cookery writers helped to challenge the status of elite classical French cuisine as the gold standard of food in England with provincial French and Mediterranean cooking. It's also the story of the rise of a new middle-class movement whose European tastes not only assumed a central place at our dinner table, but lent politics and culture in England a repertoire of feelings and sentiments that have been mobilised in debates around the EU and inequality in Britain. Welcome to episode 5 of the Full English Podcast. The story begins in the 1960s and 70s. The repertoire of the time in the late 60s was that of, you know, Sabiscoffier foods. Uh, you've got the same food from Land's End to John O'Groats, just done better or worse, with Tornado Rossini and Chicken Chester on the menu, stuff like that. This is the chef Sean Hill, who has over 50 years' experience in kitchens and is still cooking at the Walnut Tree in Wales. Sean's career has been so exceptional that it stands somewhere outside the narrative in this episode. August's Scoffier, who Sean mentions, was a chef whose influence on elite French cuisine reached its peak in the early 1900s, but which continued to dominate the high end of the restaurant scene in Britain for the rest of that century. Scoffier's influence on British food is so great that it deserves a separate episode. Generally speaking, people ate out in hotels and they ate out to celebrate a birthday wedding, to mark some rite of passage. Um, and the food was um, incidental. And so the food was a sort of imitation French food. Most of the kitchen staff were Italian and a few Spanish people. And quite a few of the dishes were, were um, Frenchified Italian and probably no worse for that. But the, how people let out, it was really for the theatre that the maitre d' Um, you knew Luigi or whoever it was, was who was the maitre d' and he gave you a good table and made a fuss of you. And then they carved things and set light to stuff. And it's easily to sneer at, but it's what people wanted. It was very polarised in those days. There were gentlemen's clubs, there were hotels and big posh restaurants. And then, you know, some Indian restaurants, but not much else, some bogus trattoria. And that was about it. I'm Faye Mashler. I'm a restaurant critic still. I started in 1972 at the Evening Standard and stayed there 48 years, which is um, 
something of a record, I imagine. Well, it just was a lot less egalitarian in those days. You know, it was, you, you could say it was kind of divided between the rich and the poor. Mm. So there were posh, expensive restaurants, and then there were greasy spoons and, you know, Bangladeshi level of, of Indian food, immigrant food, which was more affordable. But there, was the, there, was, there wasn't the kind of anything like the range now. I very rarely ate in restaurants other than Chinese and Cypriot restaurants. This is Jonathan Meads, a filmmaker and writer who between 1987 and 2000 moonlighted as a food critic for the Times newspaper. In those days, uh, Camden Town was entirely Cypriot and there were two particularly good Cypriot restaurants, Nontas and Karitsas. The food was absolutely great, uh, but there was very little indigenous cookery, whatever in Indigenous actually has come to mean. French restaurants at that time were so-so. Obviously, there were places like the Gavroche, there was Nico, there was Kaufman. These were all very sort of high-end. There were quite a lot of cheap restaurants. There were lots of cheap restaurants, but they weren't very good. There were sort of places which were fashionable, Langens, obviously, in the 70s and early 80s. But there wasn't a kind of solid nexus of places. And outside London is generally really rather terrible and continued to be terrible. It's it, honestly true to say that if you wanted really good food, you had to eat it in a fairly, you know, restricted environment. This is the chef and food writer, Roly Lee. You know, it was expensive and quite formal. You had to obey the rules, you know, dress codes and everything else. And ordinary people were rather intimidated by the atmosphere of places like that. And it wasn't very good. And certainly no one knew the name of the chef or anything. It was all about front of house and being posh and expensive and silver service. A lot of that changed, and a lot of that changed for chefs in the 1970s, quite early on. And it was with the arrival of the much-hated Nouvelle Cuisine, because the repertoire of dishes that were on just about everybody's menu, generally in misspelt mediocre French, was swept aside because it mattered. The chef made a menu. And so all of a sudden it became important to know who the chef was and if he was any good or not. And so uh, that shifted the focus, if you like, onto the kitchen and the chef and away from the front of house. Uh, that was that was sort of important. As with all the major changes in cookery styles over the years that I've seen, a lot of it was, you know, bogus. I mean, the idea of the chef as artist is risible, really. Um, and you had uh, people with no uh, artistic taste whatsoever doing designs on the plate with coloured vegetable and swirls and stuff. Uh, massive plates became the, the deal. But the, the core of it was perfectly reasonable. It certainly wasn't all bad. Um, and it's no worse, really, than one of the later fashions, which was the chef as scientist. In the 1960s, 70s and early 1980s, England's restaurant scene was divided. At the high end were restaurants and hotels serving classic Escoffier-inspired French dishes, the kitchens of which were nevertheless run by chefs who were often not from France. And while the simple refinement and elegance of Nouvelle Cuisine challenged the food of these places, the trend was short-lived and certainly never upset the elite setting of this food. In fact, it reinforced it. At the other end were cafes and restaurants representing various national cuisines, including Italian, 
Indian and Chinese, whose offerings were either intended to meet the demands of English tastes or their own communities, and whose food was adapted to the constraints of the available produce. But as the year 1987 arrived, something changed in the scene. Located in and largely limited to London, nevertheless, this change was fundamental. So it was kind of an extraordinary year because you've got River Cafe and Kensington Place and Bibendum. And I suppose it marked a change of attitude and a change of... It kind of gave rise to a whole new sort of restaurant, probably best exemplified by Kensington Place. Uh, and new architecture, plate glass window, and, you know, you could just... It was it's so democratised, eating out, which was what what was needed, really. And the order in which they opened were Alistair Little, River Cafe, Bendham, Kensington Place. Uh, and Kensington Place, I mean, when I wrote about it, I remember saying, starting the article by saying this is the one we've all been waiting for. The food was, was excellent. The service was very good. There was a bar which made extremely good cocktails. I mean, it, it just got everything right. Um, and it made places like, which it wasn't directly competing with, Nico with Goffman and Gavroche, etc. But it it made them them seem rather sort of old fashioned. Um, uh, I don't think there had been much thought previously about doing anything other than following a, a, a well well plowed furrow. You know. Picture this: it's 1987. A general election has seen Margaret Thatcher elected for a third term as well as Diane Abbott, the first ever black female MP. Unemployment remains in the millions, but is slowly falling. Arsenal win the League Cup for the first time in history, and rave culture is about to take off in the north of England. 1987 is also the year I was born, but of somewhat more relevance, and as Faye Mashler points out, it was the year that Babendum, Kensington Place, and the River Cafe first opened their doors. Two years previously, Alistair Little had led the way for these three with his restaurant in Soho. Together, these four restaurants began a big bang in London's culinary scene, the consequences of which can still be felt today. What did I have for breakfast? I actually I had toast. I had toast and peanut butter, and, uh, four, four slices. How's that? It's very good, actually. Good. Yeah, it sounds great. My name's Dan Leopard. I'm a, a writer, a chef, a baker, but mostly you find me connected to bread in some way around the world. I would eat at at Alastair's. He had this sort of sort of Italian antipasti bar that was downstairs, and behind the bar were lots of cookbooks. And I would sit at the bar, and Alastair would come down and chat. And I I was, I was just fascinated by his cooking. There were ingredients on the bar. There'd be red peppers. There would be sort of bowls of basil. There would be Amalfi lemons, there would be all sorts of things that were, were strange then. People, you didn't really see food in that way on a bar counter. Alistair said in passing one day, why don't you come and cook here? I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to. And he started me on the pastry section. He started me with making bread. That's pretty much where I stayed. I realize now that, that when, people, when people say this nonsense I hate where they say well everything's been around forever and there's no such thing as recipes and there's no such thing as invention in food fuck off this is this just isn't true you know there were, I, 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 I'd see Alistair doing really shocking things like putting sliced thin raw 
beef on a plate that he'd had in in Italy, or he'd he'd read about. He'd get this this incredibly fragrant green olive oil and pour it all over things in a way that just people didn't do. You didn't cut drizzle oil on your food. People didn't do this. So much of the excitement about Italian food in Britain absolutely comes from Alistair. And the things that we that are commonplace now, like like rocket in salads and mozzarella on things, absolutely. Alistair was saying, arguably to middle class Britain, you can do this. I dropped out of university and uh, I farmed with my father for a couple of years. Didn't like that. This is Roly Lee again. Moved to London and was pretty much pretended to be a writer, but was mostly a waster. And then when I was about 26, I was struck off the dole, so I got a job at the Rock Garden, flipping hamburgers. And uh, I thought, well, if this is what I'm going to do, I ought to do it properly. So I got a job with the Rue Brothers, and I worked for them for eight years, including the last three years as head chef of one of their satellite restaurants in the city. And then uh, I got together with some friends and opened a restaurant called Kensington Place in 1987. It was considered quite revolutionary at the time because it was, it took my skills from the Rue Brothers and put them on a much more democratic platform, if you like. And we were doing high quality food uh, at fairly low prices in a very informal, casual atmosphere with no fine dining frou-frou. It was sort of stripped down in a very sociable, convivial atmosphere. So we really did throw a hand grenade in at that point, I think. It was people feeling more comfortable with eating out that they wanted to actually enjoy the food that they were eating. And so the people who were aiming at that rather than anything that Michelin might offer or, uh, you know, might get them a round of applause at, at a catering convention, started to do very well indeed. And in fact, the poor devils who'd done the proper and normal routine through catering cultures were left behind for, for quite a while, which is a shame because they still, you know, you, you still get taught all those sort of basic things. But it, it became a job for people who were interested in food. I mean, but a bit like myself, they worked at food from the end product backwards rather than the craft skills forward, if that's not absurd. Um, uh, so you wanted food that tasted good and that you could feel good about. So the, that's where sort of stuff like provenance and decent uh, produce started to become more important. As well as that, started to come, I think, more media interest in, in chefs and cooking. I mean, Simon was, I mean, he was my god. This is Margot Henderson, co-owner and chef of Rochelle Canteen. She's talking about Simon Hopkinson, the chef of Abendum, one of the restaurants which opened in 87. I just looked up to him so much. I was desperate to go and work there, but too scared, way too scared. We'd gotten a really good review at 192 and they took us to Babendum. Simon came out and served us a rabbit pie, this beautiful rabbit pie, and in walked Elizabeth David with Egon René, then Francis Bacon sat down over there, and then, to finish it off, Barry Manilow walked across the ring. I was like, yes, <laughs> this is the place. Great simple cooking, which was cooked with such brilliance. He's beautiful, he's amazing cook. 
we're all slightly different, but Simon, you know, had a proper apprenticeship in a traditional uh, French restaurant, you know, and uh, he was also more provincial in the good way that he was very connected to all the, the good people, you know, in the country, whereas Alistair and I were more metropolitan. But um, I think we were all very heavily influenced by a book called The Great Chefs of France in the mid-70s. And that introduced us to French cooking, which included Nouvelle Cuisine. I mean, Michel Guérard was famous for Nouvelle Cuisine, but he also produced a wonderful book called Cuisine Gourmand. And there wasn't... So there were sort of parallel tendencies. And a lot of the simplicity and the the deinstitutionalizing of French food was something I think we all went along with. I wonder why it's taken us so long to become interested in using olive oil. Elizabeth David wrote about its wonderful qualities 40 years ago. Since then, age 16, I had taken my first holiday job at the Normandy to decide whether I spoon-fed myself this for the first time while on holiday in Italy. It was high summer and we ate outside in a charming restaurant. Rabbits were a sensation. Having first been marinated with a splash of local rosé, olive oil, garlic and some herbs, they sizzled and spl- I tasted it 11 years ago on a first visit to Paris. A Parisian friend called Hubert. That was the man behind the music in the show, Forrest DLG, reading from Simon Hopkinson's cookbook, Roast Chicken and Other Stories. You know, these were people in, I suppose, their 30s who had been brought up in middle-class families who'd tra- and who'd travelled a lot. I mean, they, they'd, they'd seen food in other countries. They'd tasted truffles in Alba or cassoulet in Toulouse. I mean, mostly when you read chefs telling, telling you about themselves, they've, they've all been inspired by kind of holidays in France and Spain and Italy and Europe generally. That was a sort of period before Japan came into it, say. Now that seems to be, you know, very strong influence, but not then. It was Europe. What united these four London restaurants was a focus on simplicity, on letting good ingredients, often European ones, become the focus of the meal. I mean, I remember at the beginning, because they were both amateurs, Rose and Ruthie. Faye Mashler again, and Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers of the River Cafe. I remember they ran out of sea bass and went and bought it at Harrods. Well, you know, that's not how you run a financially successful restaurant. We're really getting our hands on the most incredible pork. Now, let's put it in the roasting tray. I've got one here, Jamie. Want to put it in? Yeah. We may have to cover it, do you think, for a second or two, halfway yeah, through cooking? Yeah, I think we should start it off rather quick and then get a bit of tin foil over it maybe to stop the crackling from colouring anymore. Yes, exactly. That was a clip of the River Cafe's Ruth Rogers directing a young Jamie Oliver on how to prepare porchetta. I think they do form a coherent whole and I think it's partly that the people involved travelled and ate abroad and ate in France and Spain and Italy and came back and I suppose invented modern European, you know, where you put maybe slightly unlikely ingredients together and not not stick to a rigid cuisine of any particular country. Just as Indian restaurants in Britain adapted what were many varied styles of cooking from an entire subcontinent, an invention we now refer to as Indian food, this was provincial French and Mediterranean approaches to food invented in Britain as something else. The end result was eclectic and entirely novel. So our food is, um, celebrates the produce that we get. It's cooked in a simple way. What I would say it's British-European. We follow the rules of 
Italian, French cooking and simple food, but we, we turn it into British food. Yeah, we get our fish from around British waters. Our meat comes from um, small farms. And now some of our vegetables are coming from our small um, biodynamic farms. So yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting with produce actually, and we've really got a great team and um, menu changes, it's changing menu. I've come to Café Deco in London to meet its owner and chef, Anna Tobias. Anna's CV includes stints at River Café and Rush Hour Canteen. The head chef at Quo Vardis, Jeremy Lee, is here as well. The pair once worked together at Blueprint Café. Would you like a pie? I'd love a pie. Am I allowed a pie? Yeah. Augusta, mm. yeah. put a pie in the oven for Jeremy, please. Thank you. <laughs> well, so with, with Jeremy... I think the, the most amazing things that I got specifically from my time at Blueprint was um, pastry. Jeremy has a sweet tooth, I don't know if you know that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of amazing to work for someone who loved puddings first, because sort of feel like there are some restaurants where you feel like they don't love pudding, and you can tell that by the, how short the pudding menu is, or that it's sort of, you know, a panna cotta or a chocolate ganache. Yeah, whereas, you know, it was a really wonderful thing to learn how to make cakes and tarts and puddings and everything. Um, But also, um, Jeremy taught me who to read, which I think was, I'm not sure I would have got that from everyone. I think I remember for my first, after working there for a few months, it was Christmas relatively soon after, and I got Julia Child's Mastering Art. French cooking for Christmas and so just being kind of given some instruction on mm-hmm. which cookery writers to read was uh, really helpful to me. While Julia Childs and eventually Alice Waters led the way for this style of cooking in America, in Britain it was the studies of homely French and Italian food by the cookery writer Elizabeth David that influenced the modern European movement in England above all. You know, you factor in that this very small book was published in 1950 called The Book of Mediterranean Cooking by Elizabeth Davids, which was then swept upon by French country cooking. And, then, and they were very slender volumes. The French, big French provincial cooking didn't come out until the 60s. And then, bang, yeah. the world changed. You know, when Robert Carey, Terence Conrad, Elizabeth David all met, I mean, it was Titanic. Robert Carrier was a cookery writer and restaurateur. The designer Terence Conran was behind the furniture store Habitat, Babendum, and a string of other restaurants in London, including Blueprint. That was what spearheaded this. And George Perry Smith... I cook Elizabeth David. Joyce Molyneux, I cook Elizabeth David. It wasn't a scoffier. And then suddenly they're all going, oh, well, I don't think we all, who's this Elizabeth David? We all need to read this. And she didn't sell much, even, you know, during her lifetime, but she was a secret weapon. Folk just went, you know, this is amazing, you know. Um, And it was just, you know, a pat of butter and good bread was all you needed to cheer someone up. And the food critics just um, adored this and went berserk. So by the time the 80s and 90s came along with this, produce that had only once upon a time, minutes ago, been available at Boots for a little jar that size of olive oil and, you know, you had to buy your garlic, you know, under a hood in Soho. Suddenly, this produce was available that we'd never had access to before and went berserk. I think we were children of the Elizabeth David age, basically. My mother certainly cooked from Elizabeth David. And whereas, you know, most chefs had been thrown into a kitchen at 16 and were treated as sort of inferior beings, if you like. 
she was ahead of her times, I suppose. I mean, she taught women like Fergus's mother to cook. Um, she taught so many people how to cook through her books. In the 60s, she was, she was, she brought French cooking to Britain, didn't she? Because, I mean, Britain and England, they'd had food, hadn't they? They'd had cause a great tradition of food, especially if you lived north, you'd have tripe and onions and you know, slow cooked and your meat and your argo and you went off to the fields. But then we lost it after the war and it was all white sliced bread and fancy food. So she brought so much. She taught us what an aubergine was, you know, what olive oil was, and it didn't have to be bought in the chemist. By the time we entered the 1990s, the modern European food movement was slowly growing beyond this relatively small clique in the capital to conquer the rest of the UK. Similar trends were also emerging in America, Australia and New Zealand. But as this movement began to gather momentum, another related culinary explosion occurred in London. This time, it was centred on a single restaurant, St John. We're in Smithfield, that's the meat district of London, with the awesome Fergus Henderson, who's a chef and operator of just about my favourite restaurant in the universe, St John. This restaurant is about traditional English cuisine. And, and sort of rediscovering what has always been good in England. In New York, Anthony Bourdain was opening up this, this uh, Portuguese restaurant called La Tasca, I think it was called. And I did about two months there and we didn't get paid. And maybe at the end of the two months, these guys in suits came in with these envelopes with, it was probably only about $400, $500. And I thought, I'm going back. This is Dan Leppard again. I'm listening to him recount his life and times over a glass of red at the French house in Soho. So I jumped on a plane, came back, went back to Alistair Little's, because I, I realised flying back I had no money and I didn't have a job and I was still poor. Um, the constant theme, the <laughs> constant theme. So I went up to Alistair's and one of the sous chefs, uh, Jer- Jeremy Lee at the time, who now is the chef at, at Covadas, said, oh, darling, darling, no work here. Why don't you go down to the French house? I hear they're opening something. So I said, oh, okay, okay, right. So I popped down here and I went upstairs and they said, oh, look, the chefs aren't here. Margot and Fergus are opening up this place in Smithfield. Um, But give us your details and your phone number and uh, we'll let you know. And by the time I got back, they'd telephoned to say, yes, why don't you come? So I went down to... Uh, Smithfield. And at that time, Smithfield was absolutely a kind of rough part of town in a way that it's just hard to imagine. Now. That whole area has, has changed. But there was curb crawling, there were, you know, the sets in parks. And it, was, it was just kind of a whole different, different thing. Meat everywhere. And there were loads of taxi drivers, loads of... It was just a strange place. However, when Fergus talked about what he wanted to do there, that he wanted to open up a, a kind of eating place that, that was very much like um, the, the eating places that he'd find in Rome around the abattoir and uh, the meat di- district there. I thought, yeah, makes sense to me. Absolutely. <laughs> I thought, yes, and here we are. Here we are. I wanted to be sous chef. And, and I said, well, you can't be sous chef. We have a sous chef. And I said, well, I'll be head pastry chef then. <laughs> and Margot said... Um, as Margaret Henderson said, would you make bread? I said, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I was still very New York at this point. <laughs> I'd sort of come back powered up and kind of kind of electric. Um, so we started making bread right there. I'd been to a pop-up that 
We didn't call them pop-ups then, that Fergus had done. This is Margot talking about meeting her husband, Fergus Henderson, the man credited with St John's style of cooking. And I'd heard about this guy and I went there. Everyone was there at this opening. Um, you know, Rose Gray, I was really impressed with the chefs there. And then on the menu, it had pigeon and peas. And I thought, wow, that is crazy, man. And then on my plate came a whole pigeon and peas. And I just, it changed my whole way I thought. I just thought that was the most brilliant thing ever. And it was beautiful. Margot and Fergus met at the Eagle, a pub in London which lays claim to being the first ever gastropub. Soon after, the pair were cooking together at the French house in Soho. I started boning out the quails and Fergus said, no, Margot, we're going to leave them whole. And I was like, whoa, that is mental, that is so crazy. Now we wouldn't even think about it, but for I was being taught that a quail is boned down and then it's stuffed and roasted and then you slice it like that. So food was, as I grew up in Britain, in London, um, the food was things like a slice of orange on the side, a sprig of parsley. I mean, there was Alistair Lissu and Roly Lee really having a great understanding of, I think, um, classic um, French cooking and food that women cook at home, which then they were bringing into a more modern way. But I didn't really sort of know it. And then Fergus said, we're going to cook a whole, you know, shoulder of lamb and we're going to cook it slowly. I mean, I was just, I just thought it was the most exciting time in my life to explore this whole new way. It was much more about food that women would cook at home. It's very British in a way, and it's very, you know, you could say um, Italian or the, you know, peasant food. I don't like to say the word peasant, but, you know, provincial cooking, which is the most beautiful. It's a food that makes you really happy, isn't it? Gentle cooking. I mean, we all love fancy food too. It's fantastic and fancy restaurants with lots of waiters looking after you. But simple cooking can really blow your mind as well. And um, it was a really exciting time. I am Fergus's number one fan. <laughs> what, what Fergus wanted to do was to, from my impression, was just to simply preserve the, what, what he perceived as the essential characteristics of, of the ingredients from, from their raw state to the plate state without alchemy, with, or without an attempt at alchemy. There was no attempt to change anything though in, though in the kindest way he was very firm about leaving things alone not to garnish with potatoes with parsley but just chuck it down just plonk it down just sort of let it fall Fergus I think still talks about it being a kind of bourgeois cooking um, but, but there was also a desire to represent a sort of a uh, very simple antipasti. And I absolutely adored, well, both of them. I just adored their approach to food and still do. I love Fergus's food. And God, he's been, he's been really influential. He took what we were doing and had a step, you know, even more pared down. Sometimes it's so pared down as just to be a complete joke. But, you know, we ordered, uh, I was with a friend at St. John once and we ordered the chestnuts. It just said chestnuts, just out of curiosity, to see what he would do with chestnuts. And, of course, he did absolutely nothing. I mean, he, he gave them a little slash and then put them in the oven, and we had to peel them at the table. And my friend, who used to go to St. John two or three times a week, said, sometimes I think Fergus is just putting these on and things on and then watching from behind the kitchen door to see what we would make of them. He's been hugely influential, what he 
did and still does, um, is wholly admirable, I think. And it's just another way of looking at, you know, that nose-to-tail thing is another way of looking at cooking. You know, he he was into seasonality long before it became a kind of buzzword. And, you know, he says nature writes the menu for you. And it's true. And he follows it. Given the enormous respect that chefs and restaurant goers have towards Fergus Henderson, I wanted to speak to him. But the only way in that I could think of was that Fergus often had a Guinness at the pub I used to work at. I tried loitering around there on a few occasions. I got pretty drunk and spent loads of money, but it didn't pay off. Then one day in October last year, I received a reply from a generic St. John email address. A few weeks later, I met St. John, sat opposite Fergus Henderson and his business partner, Trevor Gulliver, with a bottle of wine, a pie, and a plate of thinly sliced mutton between us. I'm slightly sort of, uh, just sort of, Bit Fergus has Parkinson's disease, which affects his ability to talk. Strangely enough, 27 years old, still people come in and go, let's have a scary thing on the menu. There's nothing scary on the menu. It's all delicious. St. John has a reputation for serving offal. Fergus tells us that when the restaurant first appeared, newspapers greeted it with reviews containing a slew of puns, saying it was awfully good. The food they were making was presented by parts of the press as strange, even sinister, especially as it appeared in the context of Britain's BSE crisis. A mysterious brain disease is threatening the country's cows. Scientists don't know what's causing it or where it came from, but they are worried. When I visited the farm initially, the The cows were showing signs of extreme nervousness on concrete. Uh, Fergus tells me that this context and St. John's reputation meant customers sometimes came to the restaurant in an act of masculine defiance. People came in all the bone marrow. They were all showing Johnny Foreigner who were eating. There was escalation of uh, easy offal. Yeah. it's not a meaty testosterone bloodlust thing. It's spleen, take a spleen. It swells when you're in love. It's not a, it's not a sort of... Uh, I'm an awful hard nut or something like that. <laughs> it's uh, wonderful stuff. Unfortunately, depending on your view, it was like that moment when it's just full of couples, some who got married here or this, which is fine, I know that's not... And then it'll be this group of, say, five Japanese businessmen, not there. We haven't seen a Japanese businessman for two years, but sort of, have we come to the wrong... <laughs> is this a love hotel or something? <laughs> but Fergus is right. Perversely, we were busier, and our phone went bananas from the press and everything else. And we sat there about that evening, it was about eight-ish, and we said, what do we do? And we kind of thought, well, we don't understand the science. We know the provenance. We also know the age of our um, creatures, if you will. And so we decided to say absolutely nothing. Tripe onions. Yeah, it's just a sort of big up tripe onions at the moment. Very few other dishes can actually uplift and soothe at the same time. Tripe and onions, it's wonderful stuff. And romantic. And romantic, yes. I think there was definitely nervousness about meat at that stage. St. John went up and down a bit, you know, it wasn't... I remember this year and they didn't have um, air con and it was really hot and all the reviews were about um, awfully good. 
I was like, can you just put some pasta on the menu for kids? <laughs> Let's get something on. Why is it bloody bone marrow on? <laughs> you know. But then he stuck to his guns, of course, and, you know, wrote the book. And I mean, I think the book, Nose to Tail Eating, helped everyone understand more about what he was on about. It wasn't to be shocking. Focus doesn't want to be shocking, doesn't want to put meat on to go, ooh, it doesn't want it to be gory and horrible. But um, it's much more looking after the whole beast. Um, but yeah, I think people were frightened for a bit. The huge interest in the provenance of food, spurred on by the BSE crisis and the environmental movement in Britain, combined with the rise of restaurants focused on seasonal British produce, is an essential part of St John's legacy today. But what I really want to know is whether Fergus and Trevor saw St John as part of the European food movement that first appeared in London in the late 1980s. Yes, they spawned us. All right, our spawn have left us to, to spawn on. Yes, they, yes. <laughs> They've taken the spawn of the moment. From all this, um, these wild influences all coming together at one time, created modern European cooking, I think was the name that was used at the time. This is Jeremy Lee again. And of which Alistair Little and Roy Lee were absolutely the forefront of. And then from modern European cooking, modern British cooking was born. This is very important that the path is plotted because there's lots of people involved um, to create the wunderkind um, and the, the, the dazzling um, presence that is Fergus. Jonathan Meads' answer to this question is typically severe. I mean, St John is a, rarely a French restaurant, which is finding English names for French dishes. I don't think they're an English restaurant at all. It's too good. The food critic Jay Rayner has written something similar. In an appraisal of the legacy of St. John, Rayner wrote that what's called a kind of British cooking nevertheless requires a knowledge of French recipes and techniques. Indeed, there is something distinctly French and Italian about eating tripe and jowls, as well as using fresh, seasonal produce. And of course, the wine at St. John is exclusively French. This is the bit in the podcast where I ask you, in the words of Bob Galdoff, to give us your effing money. It's really simple. If you like the show and you want to see more of them made, then head over to patreon.com forward slash full English. Subscribers get access to exclusive content, including full interviews with some of the guests in this show, plus recipes such as Tripala Romana. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash full English. Back to the show. Making this episode, one thing that's puzzled me is how almost all the chefs and food writers involved in the making of modern European food came from middle-class backgrounds. In fact, several of the leading chefs in this movement were educated at Cambridge and Oxford. Yet at the same time, in 1987, one chef from a distinctly working-class background had also made his mark in London's restaurant scene with the opening of Harvey's. With his fiercely good looks, Marco Pierre White set in train a distinctly different tradition reviving the Michelin Guide in the process and spawning a string of elite chefs like Gordon Ramsay, who also hailed from disadvantaged backgrounds. If this had been going on in the world of high cuisine, did that mean that modern European food was distinctly middle class? As in, neither fish and chips nor champagne and caviar? It was, it was I have to use the phrase, but it was middle class food. You know, It was food that you'd put on the table when you had your friends round. And I, I, those guys personified it. They would probably also read around the subject a lot, you know, read MFK Fisher or Elizabeth David or whatever. You know, they would approach it differently to the way you might approach it if you were 
in a catering college. We were just three middle-class boys who had a fresh perspective and, dare I say, a slightly more intellectual approach to what cooking could be. And we, you know, we didn't feel we had the confidence, if you like, not to be hidebound by Escoffier and mm. the, the repertoire de la cuisine. I mean, we could be stigmatised as middle class, but then that's what was happening. You know, uh, an enjoyment of food was spreading out from a very small, you know, rather wealthy coterie to become a much more democratic experience. My parents have teetered between lower middle class and sort of proper middle class. You know, they wouldn't have exotic holidays, but we'd go to Brittany where my grandfather had various business contacts and we'd go to Normandy, very occasional trips to Paris and all, 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 always was staying in some cheap hotels and so on. And I imagine that is an experience which was shared by many other people uh, of my age and class. And, you know, one, you know, you think, why the hell can't we have this, you know, chips this good in Britain? Why can't, why can't we have battered, you know, veal scallops, which was good as this and so on? I wrote Jeremy a letter um, when I was 20. This is Anna Tobias talking to Jeremy Lee on how the pair first met. I'd just finished university and I decided I want to try giving cooking a go. Um, so I wrote a letter to Jeremy saying that I didn't have any experience, <laughs> um, but really loved cooking and would he possibly... And it was the most beautifully written letter. It was absolutely ravishing. Yeah, that's how we met. It was very unusual for middle-class kids to go into kitchens then, still. It was very odd. Um, I remember Anna saying that she wanted to come earlier, but she was studying at Oxford, and her parents said, you'll get your degree, and then you can choose what you're going to do. I was like, don't let me meddle with the family. Um, and so it was, um, it was a, re- a remarkable letter to receive with a story unfolding about how this young person, and Anna was very early doors about um, being one of this um, ever-growing school of people who were turning their back on um, this road that would normally take you into the city or merchant banking or to law, or one of the great professions as was. Um, and there was a growing disenchantment with that world. Folk didn't want to go into architecture necessarily or that. Um, there was this growing need to do things with our hands, to make things, um, and making things pleased far more and develop one of the great talents of the day. That's nice. <laughs> That's really nice. To say that this movement was led by middle-class chefs isn't meant to be a dig in the way that food is often talked about in this country, something we briefly discussed at the end of episode four. Instead, it's to say that the kinds of food cooked by these chefs reflected some of their tastes and life experiences, such as holidays in Europe, that were common among groups of people of a similar means and status. This is the sociologist, Ben Highmore. The term subculture gets used to talk about mods and rockers, of course, and, and hippies. But actually, it's a, you know we could use it to, to talk about the kind of fine tunings by which a group of people... Um, thinking of themselves as kind of more bohemian than another group of people. And it's interesting to me because a lot of what is seen as absolutely, uh, you know, the highest uh, kind of cultural kind of experience 
are the import of, um, you know, peasant, peasant cuisines from around the world. People use the term conspicuous thrift. So rather than kind of displaying your wealth, you actually displayed your kind of austerity, your, 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 your sense of constraint. Ben is noting the way in which groups of people emerged in the 1970s, 80s and 90s, who in a sense rejected older markers of class and taste and instead pursued something that in their eyes appeared to be authentic and pleasurable. Essentially, we're talking about a process through which Italian lardo, or the once discarded marabone, can become a desirable thing to eat at a respectable restaurant like St. John. I think the idea of a kind of Mediterranean food as offering something that was authentic, however fabricated and fashioned that, that would be, is, is certainly kind of one element of it. The other element is uh, informality, that you can have a kind of dining experience that, that had much more of a kind of sense of the, the inf- informality that you might experience if you went to, actually went to Italy that it wasn't going to be kind of claridges where you'd be absolutely kind of terrified to talk to the waiter, or it wasn't going to be, you know, the, 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 the Bernie Inn, which, you, you know, was going to be like a three-course heavy business-style kind of uh, experience. None of this is to say that eating pasta is actually posh or middle class. According to recent survey evidence, Spagbol is the number one favourite family meal in the UK. Number two was found to be pizza, Number seven, pasta and sauces. Twelve, lasagna. And thirteen, the humble pasta bake. The same research suggests that in the 1970s, the only Italian-sounding dish on the list of 20 family favourites is spagbol again, but this time at number 13. So Italian food, or at least, like Indian food, a British version of it, went mainstream. And the modern European food movement played an important role here particularly as it helped to spawn this guy. And that, me old mates, is the essential guide to Bucketucker. Right, so, this is spaghettini. Just bend it around, get it in there. Go on, my son. Here we go. The fantastic thing about this pasta dish, right, is it's going to look lovely, it's going to be really good for you, very simple, and it's a classic sort of sicilian style sort of pasta. What we're going to do is I've got these lovely tomatoes... I think for a lot of my generation, more... So than necessarily like Simon and Alistair and Rowley. Like I wouldn't underestimate the like effect and importance that like Jamie Oliver had on my generation. I watched his shows all the time. He definitely is part of the reason I started to, to enjoy cooking as a young person. Snake is what I call my way of cooking. What I cook in the restaurant isn't what I cook at home. Cooking's gotta be a laugh. It's gotta be simple, it's gotta be tasty, it's gotta be fun. No way, it's not me, it's the food. If this was the democratisation of good food in England, then it was a very English process. There was no revolution. No heads met the blades of guillotines, no Republican tricoloured flags. Instead, like the extension of the vote, the movement rolled out gradually, slotting into the mould of the British class system, beginning with the middle class, before eventually arriving to the rest of us in a transformed state. Jamie Oliver who trained at the River Cafe, played an important part in popularising this way of eating, creating demand for Italian ingredients that were willingly supplied by British supermarkets and popular restaurant chains. We have Jamie to thank for the ubiquity of Italian ingredients sold in shops and served in pubs. He progressed the very English eclecticism that the first wave of modern European food had affected upon otherwise highly conservative food traditions. Essentially, in Jamie's eyes, 
pineapple is always welcome on pizza. On pizza, is pineapple permissible? <clears throat> like, so my training and my experiences <laughs> yes. and my time spent cooking and traveling around Italy yes. would say no. But just yesterday, I wrote a menu that did have pineapple okay, on yes. like this incredible kind of um, it, it, no, it gets worse. It gets worse. This incredible jerked pork, right? Oh, um, and I, I said, look, I but the legacy of this movement is broader than its impact on our diets. As the invented modern European cuisine was popularised, it was shaped by our divided society. In this way, European cuisine has often appeared to designate what is or isn't middle class. But reality is far more complicated. On one level, it's obviously false to say that only middle-class people eat this thing that I'm calling modern European food. Clearly, as we've already seen, that's not the case. Just as almost everyone eats British Indian food, so too does almost everyone today eat some version of pizza and pasta. Yet on a different level, the high end of modern European cuisine can be pretty pricey. Extra virgin olive oil of a good provenance or peasant-inspired dishes served at a modern European restaurant is for most people in England an infrequent treat, if that. But things get complicated when we factor in that many affluent people in England don't value spending money on food, while many people who, for example, can't afford a deposit on a house might reasonably spend their limited disposable income on pleasurable experiences. The problem gets even more complex when these culinary markers of class are mapped onto the cultural debates surrounding Brexit. Quite clearly, the 49 million people who voted in the referendum cannot be neatly divided by class. Yet the modern European food movement has helped to create a pervasive image of the Remainer as a middle-class bohemian who fears the rising cost of olive oil. By contrast, is an image of the Leave voter, whose culinary home is a pie and mash shop and who, according to this pervasive idea, is comfortable with importing chlorinated chicken. This image of Brexit corresponds in part to the fact that some of the most vocal opponents of leaving the EU share the same social world as the original protagonists of modern European cuisine, including holidays in Europe, political perspectives and economic and educational backgrounds. This means that high-end European food items have been elevated as a potent symbol of a social divide, even where they fail to represent who is or who isn't middle class and who supported leave and who supported remain. Speaking about Brexit to the chefs and food writers for this episode left me with mixed feelings. On the one hand, I sympathise with aspects of the catastrophic way in which they view leaving the EU. On the other, I can't help think that, for better or worse, this might be a culinary movement that has run out of road. That leaves me with the question of what next, what might, and what perhaps already has taken its place. Must it be a nativist movement of kippers and Yorkshire pudding as conjured up by the media spectacle of Leave voters? Might it be Asian, American and Australian foods, as could represent the idea of a so-called global Britain? Or what else? In the next episode, we'll begin to answer this question by asking first, just what is a national cuisine? And second, who has the power to make one? been listening to the full english this podcast was made by me lewis bassett follow the show on twitter and insta at full eng pod music for the show is provided by forest dlg you can find him on twitter and insta at forest dlg i'm really grateful to all the guests in this episode but special thanks to the wonderful dan leopard 
It's patreon.com forward slash full English to support the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash full English. You know the drill by now. If we get enough subscribers, we'll make more episodes. That's it. Thanks for listening and make sure to check out the final episode in this first series of the Full English.